0: For those of you who don't know, my name is Ricky Ragone, and I am the music and arts and youth pastor here at King's Chapel. The, uh, our regular lead teaching pastor, Pastor Lou, is, is out of town this weekend. Um, and I get to continue in the series, Jude, Contending for the Faith. Um, and that's where we're going to be this morning as we read from the scriptures. Uh, we're going to be in verses 14 and 16, so if you could turn there. That would be great. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we do have some in the back, just to the right of the sound booth. Take it, read it, keep it. You can, you can keep it. It is yours if you want it. So, we're going to be in Jude, verses 14 to 16. We'll also be in Romans 5, 6 to 8. Verse 14. It was also about these, the people who Jude has been referring to in the past paragraphs, It's also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage in Romans 5 6 to 8 for while while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly for one will scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die but God shows his love for us and Christ died for us God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So, uh, kids and teachers, you guys can head back to your children's church classes at this time. What a book this book has been, huh? (sighs) I mean, when, when we flip past Jude in our Bible, which is very easy to do, being as it's one page, you just wouldn't think that this letter could be so loaded, jam-packed and it's not exactly the the book you hear quoted on Caleb because it's not all that positive and encouraging (laughs) from what we read but there's a reason for what Jude says in these verses that we're at this morning so let's keep them in context let's recap a little bit as we get here to verse 14 if you remember Jude began the letter with a reminder of the gospel, with a reminder that they have been called, loved, and kept in God the Father for Christ. That's what he says. He reminds them of that, their identity. And then he offers them a a rich prayer, a short prayer, but a rich prayer. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. (laughs) It's a prayer we need every day, huh? But then Jude moves into the meat of the letter, the purpose of the letter. He wanted to write to them. He wanted to write to them about the the, the common salvation, the, the things that brought them together in the gospel. But there was a problem. People crept in and perverted the grace of God, and so now he needs to address that with this letter. And he's writing to them, urging them to contend for the faith, hence the name of our series. But before he tells them how to contend, he tells them why they need to contend. And that's where we've been the past two weeks. Here's the reason why they need to contend for the faith. And he uses three examples right off the bat to, to convey to them, here's the problem with what's happening. He, he likens what's happening to, to Israel in the wilderness and, and their lack of faith in God who had saved them. They, they, they doubted him. And he tells of how they end up destroyed. The angels who sought more power and desired to leave their position of authority. And they, as Jude says, are kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. Then he moves to Sodom and Gomorrah, which met their demise as a result of their rampant sexual immorality and disregard for God. Three groups, Israel, angels, Gentiles, all meet their ultimate doom as a result of lack of faithfulness and blatant denial of their only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So Jude continues to expand on that more. More on these teachers who pervert the grace of God as a license of sin. He says they only, they only rely on their own dreams and authority. They reject the authority of God. They reject the authority of the apostles. So what's going on here. He says, even Michael the archangel still honors the authority of the Lord when disputing with Satan about Moses' body. In their disregard for the Lord's authority, they're following their desires like unreasoning animals, and it will lead to their demise. They're following in the footsteps of Cain and Balaam and Korah, all of whom were condemned for their selfish denial of God's authority. Pastor Lou mentioned last week, they didn't just come in guns blazing with with a red devil costume and a pitchfork so everyone knew exactly who they were. They creep in unnoticed, like hidden reefs, Jude describes it. They come in unnoticed, and they come in with selfishness. He says they're shepherds who feed themselves. And what they teach has no substance like a waterless cloud or a tree with no fruit. And then Jude says, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. There's a seriousness to what these false teachers are doing. They aren't just flubbing on some open-handed issues. They're, They're perverting the grace of God, teaching this antinomianism that believers are saved by grace And as a result of that grace, we have a license to do what we want and when we want because, hey, we've got grace anyway. But that flippant attitude towards sin is antithetical to what God's grace actually calls us to. And their perversion of that grace and their blatant denial of Jesus Christ's teachings and the apostles' teaching, Jude says, is only going to lead to disaster for them. And Jude is warning those in the church, contend for the faith, Because this is what's coming. And that's where we arrive in verse 14. In Jude's final thoughts on what these false teachers are doing. As he tells the church, the only conclusion for people that are pursuing this path is judgment and conviction. If you guys have been here any amount of time, you know I like humor. You know I like being a little silly. This passage makes it very hard. (laughs) Because there's a reality to it. There is a depth of truth to it that just, I look at it and go, yeah, that's not good. Can't exactly crack a joke there. Well, we'll see what happens. I always find a way. But (laughs) this morning we're going to look at these verses through the conviction of the ungodly the character of the ungodly, and that Christ came for the ungodly. This is your first time here this morning and you opened the bullets and I'm sure you were like, oh, that's a nice sermon title. Judgment and Conviction. That feels good. This is gonna be a good morning. You're thinking exactly what I was thinking when uh, I saw where my preaching date lined up with the passage. I'm like, oh, this is gonna be a hoot. But at the same time, at the same time, it's not like I really wanted to do the paragraph above it or the paragraph above that. So really we take with what we're given and we preach it because it's the word of God. And if we didn't do expository preaching, we just dodge dodge passages like this, right? There's a strength to going through books of the Bible, seeing them in their context, hearing what God had for these people in its context. We don't dodge it, we preach it. And we ask and we learn that the Spirit would do a work in us through it. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So let's look at the conviction of the ungodly. It begins with Jude. Quoting from a work that's not in our Bibles. That's not a part of canonized Jewish scriptures. Jude begins with quoting to the people a prophecy from the book of 1 Enoch. Before we get to the book itself, we have to ask, ask the question, because I'm sure not everyone here is a biblical scholar who knows exactly who Enoch is. So we've got to ask, who's Enoch? I had to look up exactly who's Enoch. Okay, I, I've heard of Enoch, but who is he? Because he's not in the Bible much. He's not a dominant Old Testament uh, figure like Abraham or Moses or David or Solomon. But Enoch's a very interesting and still quite a significant person in the lineage of Adam. And we find Enoch in the midst of genealogies in Genesis chapter 5. Now, some of you guys might know, genealogies have a certain flow about them. They, 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 they usually start with so-and-so had lived, we'll say, 60 years and fathered this person. And then lived another 400 years. So, so so-and-so lived 460 years uh, and died. That's pretty much the flow of a genealogy. It's real nice. Um, They all end with this statement, and he died in Genesis chapter 5. But Enoch's story is different. Genesis five, twenty one to twenty four says, When Enoch had lived sixty-five years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God and he fathered Methuselah three hundred after he had fathered Methuselah three hundred years, had some other sons and daughters. Thus the days of Enoch were three hundred and sixty five years. So far the format follows perfect. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Doesn't say he died. What does it mean? Well, the fact that Enoch walked with God, and there's this note that Enoch walked with God in this passage, is significant. It's a a verb that conveys a sense of ongoing intimacy with God. This, This relationship that God and Enoch have with one another. And as such, Enoch doesn't have to face the doom and gloom of having, and he died at the end of his little genealogy paragraph. Instead, He's taken up rather than dying. He's taken up to God. Elijah is another one who we see taken up to heaven in this fashion. And Enoch was important because of this. This is pretty unique. Most people have a tombstone with a birth date, a death date, not usually a taken up date. That's what he's got. 365 years, taken up. The author of Hebrews has a little something to say about Enoch. Hebrews eleven five, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So Enoch's got a pretty good rap in the Bible. Good reputation about him. So that's basically what we know about Enoch. The other thing we know about Enoch we see here Jude says he was the seventh from Adam. Why does he take the time to reference that Enoch is the seventh from Adam? Could be two reasons. Could be the number seven. Old Testament and the Hebrew, number seven, significant. This perfection about it has this this sense of uh, divine completion around the number seven. So he was the seventh from Adam. If you include Adam as number one and Enoch as number seven, that's the seventh. It's not like there's Adam and then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, then Enoch. That's not how they did it. So he's the seventh from Adam. He's the seventh person in the line. And because of that, Jude makes a note. He's the seventh from Adam. And that's who he is. There's something significant about that. He could have thought that it had more weight to what he was about to say if he was the seventh, which he was. He could have also mentioned that this distinguishing part of Enoch because it would show which Enoch he was talking about. Because Cain also had a son named Enoch. And he wasn't talking about that Enoch, but he was just talking about Cain. So rather than just going right into Enoch, he would distinguish Adam, the seventh from Adam. This is who I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the other Enoch. Both would be good reasons to do it. Unfortunately, Jude doesn't say, seventh from Adam, and I'm saying this because of this significance. He doesn't give us that. He doesn't expand on that. He just leaves that distinction and gets on with the prophecy. So, those are two possible solutions. I'm just going to leave those and move on like Jude does. Um, I think both are good, good reasons to say it, um, but we don't need to hang out there too much longer. So, Back to the book of First Enoch, because I mentioned it when we first started the point. There's a lot of backstory here, because he's quoting something that's not in the Bible. But it's an extra-biblical text that, um, that uh, Jewish people and early Christians, they would have been familiar with. So Jude, knowing the context of who he was writing, was using something that he was sure they would be familiar with. But the use of this quote seems to throw all this speculation around the book. Well, was First Enoch inspired as the rest of Scripture? Did Jude view a book that wasn't a part of it as authoritative? Because he uses a part of it and Jude is a part of our canon and inspired, does that then make this text, because Jude used it, authoritative and inspired? We touched on it last week with with Jude's other quotation of the Assumption of Moses. It's very similar. Jude is quoting a non-canonical work, just as Paul quotes from philosophers and poets. He quotes from them to communicate in a way in which they would understand and get the truth that was being taught. This is what the people would understand. He's using something from outside the Bible to teach something that's true. In the Bible, Uh, we had Richard Lenski, the quotes up on the screen. No matter whence or how an inspired writer obtained his information, the Holy Spirit nailed him to sift out and adequately present only what is genuine and true. I think that sums up what's happening here pretty well. Jude's using one verse reference from First Enoch to teach a concept which is found all over the Old Testament. There's nothing new here. That, that Jesus was going to come, right, when it says Lord in our passage, he used the word Kyrios, which usually is ascribed to Christ, Kyrios, Lord. Jesus will come to execute judgment and convict those who are ungodly. That's a true fact of Scripture. So we can get hung up on Jude's quotation source, or we can look, what's Jude trying to say. What's the point of the quote? And I think that's more important. Maybe in your community groups, and I'll make sure this gets in the, the guide, you can look at the, the nature of Jude's quote from First Enoch with Deuteronomy 33.2 or Isaiah 66.15 and 16 and Zechariah 14.5 and see the truth, how it's true throughout the scriptures. The Lord will come to judge we don't have time this morning to look at them, but we can see the truth of what Jude is saying in those scriptures. And they, quoting from First Enoch, is not in any kind of conflict with the scripture. He's using it, again, to support the truth of scripture and convey something to an audience who would understand it. Anyway, we've been like 15 minutes in the point of conviction of the ungodly, having got to conviction or the ungodly. So, let's get there. Let's look at first what conviction means. Because when we think conviction, we typically think one thing. We usually think in the context of Christianity, the conviction of sin. The, the conviction that makes us feel like, oh no, maybe I shouldn't have done that. That kind of conviction. What Jude is talking about here when he talks about conviction, because first there's judgment, so he's going to come to judge. Guilty, not guilty, that's what a judge does. Within this legal judgment context, Jude says to convict. He's using convict in the sense of being declared guilty or effectively punished. The term conviction is used here as an ultimate sense of conviction. Because of your ungodly deeds, you are guilty and there is punishment. Conviction. Here's something important to remember. We don't know when, though some people do. We don't know when or who this judgment and conviction was going to come. We don't know when it's coming, who it's coming for exactly. But we do know that judgment and conviction is a sure outcome for those who remain in the ungodliness that Jude is talking about. This prophecy of judgment and conviction is given, but from it, Holy Spirit conviction, the conviction I was just talking about, can happen. That's, the, that's a different conviction. So this prophecy comes and says, the Lord's coming. He's a judging. He's convicting. So that we can hear that and go, that's true. I need to surrender this stuff. We can become convicted through the ultimate Conviction that's to come, and that can seem confusing. But Jude's warning is a grace, a gracious warning. This is what's coming. Repent. Turn to Jesus. Those caught in their ungodliness, those caught, uh, those described in this passage, could still repent and turn to Christ. But Jude's warning is if they don't, if they continue in the ways of Israel in the desert, if they continue in the way of the angels who tried to exceed their authority, if they continue in the way of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, if they continue to follow after Cain and Balaam and Korah, what's coming is judgment and legal, ultimate, eternal conviction. That's what I was thinking. If they continue to sin in order that grace may abound, judgment and conviction is coming. Guys, the reality of sin is this. Paul says it, Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. If we don't recognize our sin, confess our sin, repent of our sin, and put our faith in Christ The very real result is eternal death. Judgment. Eternal separation, punishment as a result of our sin. That's the bad news. This verse has good news. The free gift of of God is eternal life found through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We'll expand on that later when we get to the end. Conviction. Conviction. That's what he's talking about. Ultimate, eternal. It's coming. What does he mean by ungodly? So conviction's coming. It's for really the ungodly. But what does he mean? Because he uses it four times in one sentence. Like, like someone who's like really upset and ranting, and all they can think of is just one thing to say. You know, you ever hear someone like rant and they, they're just stuck on that, and he's coming to execute judgment and convict all the ungodly of their deeds and ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against them. He just, he gets hung up and all you can think of is ungodly. What is he talking about when he says ungodly? Because we have a picture of ungodly in our head, don't we? Like when we think that something, oh, that's ungodly. That person's ungodly. What are we thinking of? We're usually thinking of the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low, the worst possible people ever, the worst possible scenario, deeds committed like that of Las Vegas last weekend. All those, they qualify as ungodly. That's what we think of. But ungodly doesn't only mean that. You could take the, the nicest, most moral, the just a caring person, who seemingly does the right thing every time but they reject who god is they are ungodly it's hard to wrap our mind around because you're like but they're so nice but they're so lost they're ungodly if they don't have faith in the true and living god they are ungodly it has to do with a reverence of god It starts with the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Ungodliness is denying that. If we were to get every other aspect of the law right, which I know, (laughs) impossible, but if we were able to do that in this crazy hypothetical, it'd still be for nothing if we miss the first and greatest commandment. Because it's that relationship with God that's the start of everything else. So ungodliness is, is denying that relationship. It's living outside the truth and the reality that God is the supreme creator and Lord of the universe. And that's what these people are doing in the passage. Back in verse 4, Jude says it. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That's ungodliness. Ungodliness. In their perversion of God's grace, they deny his holiness, deny his justice. They didn't believe he would come to judge sin. They didn't believe that condemnation was coming. But Jude is assuring them in this passage, yes, it's coming. Yes, it's real. And unless you repent of the sin that, 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 that you're living in, that you're pursuing, it's coming for you just as it did all those we mentioned earlier, Israel, angels, Korah, He's telling the readers of this letter a gracious warning of what's to come. And we could fall into it just as easy as the people in this letter. You know, we gotta use the mirror and look at ourselves when we look at passages like this because it's real easy to be like, yeah, tell them, sinners. But where's ungodliness creeping into our lives? Where are we subverting God's authority to follow our own? How are we neglecting the first commandment? We need to be regularly examining ourselves, repenting of sin. Repentance is, is a sign of the Holy Spirit's work in us, in convicting us in Holy Spirit conviction. The Spirit allows us to see the horror of our sin and moves us to bring it before Christ. Conviction's a grace. We don't think of it that way, but it is. And repentance is a gift. We don't do it out of like fear of loss of salvation. We do it in gratitude because of our secure salvation. Jude told him at the beginning of the letter, called, loved, kept in Christ. And out of grateful hearts for that, for what Christ has done and continues to do in holding us and clinging to us, we see the wickedness of our sin and we just say, I don't want that, I want you, and we we ask for forgiveness. We, we repent. We turn to Christ. That's why he's encouraging them to contend for the faith. Contend for what is true because what these guys are offering is not true. It's not of substance. It's a, it's a waterless cloud. There's true hope in the true gospel. So, he tells them, here's what you guys can be looking for in the ungodliness, cuz he, he actually says, he gives a description of what these this particular breed of ungodly looks like in verse 16, the character of the ungodly. Here's how you can identify it. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. That's real nice. It's a real nice thing to have said about you. The truth hurts, I guess. Um, So this little identification of what this looks like gives them characteristics to look for. And he starts with grumblers and malcontents. Very similar to that of Israel, who he mentions in verses 5 and 6. Israel and the angels. They grumbled in their position. They were dissatisfied by where they were at. They didn't like it. They didn't trust God. It's more of a whining or a complaining, which can be annoying and bad enough. But what they actually had was a complete rebellious lack of trust in who God was and God's ordained plans. That's a problem. Like Israel in the wilderness or the angels who desired more power, these people Jude was addressing are dissatisfied with biblical grace. A grace that saves us and moves us to repentance of sin. They wanted their own version, they wanted their own God, their own golden calf of grace. They wanted a God who who doesn't say that we shouldn't sin that grace may abound. They were not content with God's call to a pursuit of holiness. They wanted to pursue what they wanted to pursue. They were grumblers and malcontents. What exactly do they want to pursue and follow? It says it. Their own sinful desires. I feel like we've seen this already in the book. We have. Sodom and Gomorrah. They followed their own sinful desires. This habitual pursuit of lust and greed. So they have the the grumblers and the malcontents rebelling against God and in their rebellion they're following their own sinful desires. The desire to sin and sin and sin because that's what they want to do. There's a difference between striving to look like Christ, striving to live as Christ and the gospel calls us to live and stumbling in the process and finding ourselves needing forgiveness, repenting of sin. That happens. That's normal. That's in the scriptures. Paul talks about the battle he has, about the things he wants to do versus the things he does. There's a difference between that and just spitting in the face of God and saying, you're wrong, I'm going my way and just running that way. There's a complete difference in that. They've perverted the grace of God. They believe that they have their official license to sin card and they just say, it's okay, I've got grace. I'm fine. It's like in Seinfeld. When the character Elaine is given rain over the J. Peterman catalog, he runs away to Burma. She's given rain over the catalog. She's given the the company credit card. You guys knew I had to get a Seinfeld reference in, right? I missed it last sermon. It wasn't going to happen again. Anyway, she gets the credit card and she goes buck wild spending. She buys George Costanza this sable hat that like a Russian hat thing. She goes nuts and she gets a phone call from someone in accounting who's seen a rise in the charges of the company credit card and he calls her on it. And she says, Well, isn't the president allowed to do anything they want? And his answer is a simple no. Just because our righteousness is based on what Christ has done, Christ's credit, doesn't allow us to, as Elaine says, do anything we want. God's grace is not something to be taken for granted. It's something to be cherished. It should point us to and help us desire to look like Christ. God's grace shouldn't make us run to sin. It should make us want to flee from it. I remember if i get in trouble as a kid and I thought I knew exactly what was coming and then when, when it came down to it, I wasn't given the punishment I thought I was going to get, something much more gracious, that was usually motivation to steer clear of what I just did because I cut it close. I don't want to play with fate again and actually get the punishment. Now, granted, I would find something else to do that would get me in trouble because not perfect. Um, but I do remember those moments that when you, you didn't get the spanking, it was like, whew, that was too close. I'm not gonna do that. We're not, we're not in God's grace to run towards sin. We weren't, that's not the point of it. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for habitual, rampant sinning. No, that's not what it says. Everyone's like, that sounds wrong. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When we receive the grace of God, we are made new in Christ It's not for the purpose of then, good, I got my card. I'm going to go do what I was doing already. That doesn't even make logical sense. We are created for good works. We're given grace. We're given new life to live in obedience to what Christ calls us to. And the call isn't live perfectly. That's impossible. That would be an impossible standard. We still wouldn't meet it. That's why we needed Christ in the first place. The call is not perfection. That's not what I'm saying. But we should be striving to flee, as Paul says to Timothy, Second 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Youthful passions and sinful desires. What we see here is sinful desires. What we see in 2 Timothy is youthful passions. It's the same word. It's the same thing. They're both communicating the same thing. Don't run towards sin. Flee from sin. If there's a monster chasing you, we'll pretend monsters are real. If you're being chased by a monster and someone saves you from that monster, how dumb is it to hop out and go, hey monster, let me dive into your mouth. That seems ridiculous. That's, that's what's happening here. We're saved from sin. We're saved from it. And now we, we want to run to it? That's not what Christ came for us to do. Repentance is turning from sin and running to Christ. The mark of their ungodliness here is their habitual pursuit of sinful desires. Cannonballing right into the depths of the monster's stomach. They're grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're also loudmouth boasters. They had an arrogance about them. They would boast in their rebellion. They'd be almost happy about it, proud of it. Boast how they had their theology right, and all the apostles and everyone else, they were wrong. When someone thinks they've got it figured out, sometimes they can just be the loudest ones in the room. But just because something gets louder doesn't mean it's truer, more true. Like, if there's there's a horrible song, not even just lyrically, like musically awful, if I crank it up, it doesn't make it any better. It just makes it louder. When there's bad theology, if I just yell it louder at you. Sorry for anyone with the hearing stuff in. I realized that was straight in your ears. Um, <laughs> just because they get louder doesn't make it truer. These guys were loud, but what he called them waterless clouds, trees with no fruit. They're, they're loudmouth boasters, but they had no, no substance. They were bombastic. They wanted to rebel against God, they were going to do it proudly. There's an arrogance. It's the picture Jude's painting. One who boasts in such a way is usually aiming to to, to puff himself or herself up. They neglect God and make themselves the hero of every story. You ever see a, a preacher who every illustration is like about them, but it's not about their screw ups, it's about how good they are? That they've got it all together? Don't listen to that preacher because they're lying, because no one has it together. No pa- if any pastor says, I'm good, I got this. They are deceiving themselves and they're deceiving the people they're preaching to because they're missing the point of the gospel. We need Christ because we don't have it together. If they're boasting in themselves, they're missing the, the point of what Paul says in Galatians 6, 14. He says, but far be it from me to boast Except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we boast family, we boast in the cross. We boast in the cross and come before the cross when we try to puff ourselves up, and we have to just come before Christ and go, "Take this pride from me." That's we boast in what Christ has done, not in what we do. And lastly, they show favoritism to gain advantage. What advantage were they gaining? That's kind of the, the question asked by most commentators. What, what were they doing? What favoritism were they showing to gain advantage? What kind of advantage were they gaining? There's a couple options. They could have just been catering to the rich, neglecting the poor, so that in their teaching, this new good news that they had, they could help line their pockets. Possibly they could gain financial advantage. Uh, they could be showing people flattery, buttering people up, making them feel real good to maybe gain some kind of a social advantage, to, to, to get in where, where they want to get their message in, to take advantage of people. These false teachers were, were using people for selfish gain. And whether it's financial gain or, or social gain, what they're doing is using others for their own agenda, to prosper themselves. That's not biblical. That's not gospel relationship. Paul says, Philippians 2, 1-3, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So if I'm using you for selfish advantage, I'm doing the opposite of what we're called to. I'm not putting others first. That's the call of the gospel. Gospel people don't use people and love things. We should use things and love people. They were using people, flattering people for their own gain, for their own advantage. And just like ungodliness, just like the other things, we need to look in the mirror. We need to to, to check ourselves because it's easy again to fall into any one of these things. Surely you've been in a season of life that you are not thrilled about being in. Have you grumbled? Have you said, "God, I don't want Your way. Your way is hard. I don't want that. I want a I want a God who's easy to follow." Who brings me to different seasons of life? Have we found ourselves unhappy and grumbling, malcontent? What sinful desires take precedence over your pursuit of Christ as the chief and greatest desire of your heart? These are questions I'm asking myself too as I have to work through this text. Where is pride creeping in? Pride, that's a fun one. You a little loudmouth boaster. Do I care for others more than myself so that I don't use them for my own gain? It's very easy to do. But in all these things, when we find ourselves guilty, we have the grace to come before Christ and say, forgive me. Forgive me, this is wrong. Your word says it's wrong. Forgive me. First John 1.9 says what? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the grace of the gospel. Not that we ignore our sin and just take advantage of Christ's perfect sacrifice but don't recognize the wickedness of sin and the evil of it, but that he died for it so that we could be forgiven, we could come before him. Which leads us to our last point. Turn to Romans 5. Because we were looking at ungodly and... uh, Judgment and conviction was coming for the ungodly, but there's good news for the ungodly. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the good news of the gospel. Christ left glory in heaven, became flesh, lived under the same fallen conditions we lived under, was tempted as we were tempted, never sinned, lived perfectly, kept the law perfectly, and he was still crushed for our iniquity. He still paid the penalty of our sin. Someone would rarely do such a thing for a good guy. I'm not the first one signing up. But Christ did it for the worst. He did it for the wretches, he did it for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ says, "I love you. I care for you. Come, follow me. Believe in me, put your hope and trust in me. I didn't come to condemn you, but to save you from condemnation." John 3:17. That's good news. Jesus came and died to pay the penalty for the sins of even those who, as Jude says, deny their only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. What an example we have of Saul of Tarsus literally killing people because they followed Christ. And he redeems him. He uses him for his glory. Christ died for the ungodly. That Saul, Paul, is the one who writes that in his letter to the Romans. Jesus went to the cross for the grumblers and the malcontents who pursue sinful desires, for the loud loudmouth boasters, for the one who flatters others to gain, for gain. He went to the cross that they might see the goodness of God and repent of those sins and receive forgiveness. He went to the cross for those who seek moral good works, and self-righteousness to earn God's favor for the ungodly. Ungodly is who we are without Christ. Yes, we are made in the imago Dei, the image and likeness of God. Yes, we have dignity, value, and worth because of that. But without God, we're living in the uh, uh, ungodly, sinful ways of, of Adam. The first Adam. But Jesus is the greater and better second Adam. and the first Adam, in our ungodliness, we were, as Paul says in Ephesians, dead in our trespasses and sins following the course of this world. But he also says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. There is a reality of real Judgment and conviction of sin. Those who remain in their denial of Christ, for those who would follow their own passions and sinful desires over following Christ. Jude says this is a reality. Christ is going to come and execute judgment to convict the ungodly. But we know from 2 Peter 3.9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We don't know when the judgment's coming. We don't know who it's coming for. So our desire and our, our, our wish should be as that of 2 Peter 3.9. That, that none should perish and all should reach repentance. That should propel us on mission. To, to preach this gospel, this that Christ died for the ungodly, to, to, to preach it to those who we can, to spread it, to speak it. Jude doesn't write this letter so that the, pe- the, the, the people perverting grace will just read it and get their comeuppance as it's called. Jude understands that the reality of, of what pursuing ungodliness results in, and there's an urgency to see Truth of the gospel, contend against it. Do we feel that urgency? Do we feel that urgency in a a culture that's trending further and further away from Christ? Do we feel that urgency in churches that are trending further and further away from Christ? The fate of those who turn their back on God to pursue their own ungodliness, to pursue their own sinful desires... To rebel against God. It's clear in here. Judgment. Conviction. But Christ came in love. Selfless, sacrificial love to give his life for the ungodly. Christ took our judgment, our conviction, so that we'd receive freedom and life. That's good news. Let's finish our time together here this morning savoring the truth of that love. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the grace and the mercy we've been shown in your son Jesus Christ. We pray that we pray that grace and mercy and love would propel us to confess sin, to repent of sin, and to rejoice in gospel forgiveness and Christ's forgiveness. We don't want to be a people who use your love as an excuse for sinful living. Help us to put off our grumbling against you. Allow us to be content in what you have for us. Help us to flee sinful passions and run toward you. Keep us focused on the cross, lest we become loudmouth boasters. And instill in us a gospel love for others that we wouldn't use people for our own gain. We ask that your spirit work in us. Give us a desire to pursue Christ in our living. Allow us to see the depth of your love that we might live to show that love to others. That we would boast in Christ, in Christ alone, and in his finished work. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.